0: and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace welcome everybody to another episode of trans Regret, snoopy presents the bible for this week's episode I'll Be Alone, discussing the second letter of Peter. Uh, while the implications of this letter are far-reaching and um, the authorship has been debated, the message is very clear, very important, and I think especially pertinent to those of us today who still have faith in Jesus. I'm going to start without any house cleaning this week. Uh, I'll do any notes that I have at the end of the episode. I really just want to dive into a couple of introductions that I found in my favorite Bibles that help me understand the context for this letter. The voice translation says, Later tradition credits this letter to Peter, one of the twelve, an eyewitness to much of Jesus' public ministry, and the same disciple who, according to tradition, when sentenced to die, requested to be crucified upside down, because he felt unworthy to die in the same way his Lord did. Initially, there were questions about this letter, so it was one of the last letters accepted and made part of the New Testament canon. Peter writes this second letter to the same churches he addressed in 1 Peter, but the address here is more generic, which suggests that he expects this letter to be read broadly to anyone who shares his faith in Jesus. Jumping over to the NRSV introduction for this. The second letter of Peter presents itself as the work of Simon Peter, whose death was predicted by Jesus. The author has witnessed the transfiguration, which is evidence that Jesus' promise to return in glory is no mere fable, as some allege. At the same time, identification with Peter or even a disciple of Peter appears unlikely. Although the author claims to have written a previous letter, 2 Peter does not reflect the social setting of 1 Peter or its imagery for the new covenant community. Despite the author's claim to fellowship with Paul, the reference to misinterpretation of Paul's letter suggests that they have already been collected and are treated as scriptures in some churches, clearly not the case during the lifetime of the apostles. So here we have two different translations presenting two different uh, varied versions of who we are to believe actually wrote this letter. The belief in the NRSV is that Um, fairly solidly, is that this was a pseudonym of someone who was a devout follower of Jesus, who admired the teachings of Peter and wanted to relay that message to the church. It says that it's dated here um, sometime in the late 1st century or early 2nd century. At that point, Peter would have been dead. Now, the voice seems to accept what is um, sort of commonly accepted as the authorship for this letter— Peter was indeed one of the 12. Uh, Peter was um, one of the closest apostles to Jesus in many ways. And he was the one in, um, in his, co- his own capacity that was called to spread the word of the gospel all across the world. Uh, he's credited Peter as being the first pope in the Catholic Church. Uh, his death on an upside-down cross is obviously up for debate Um, There's no proof of that. Uh, It may just be a sort of commonly um, accepted story that, uh, while dramatic and beautiful and intense, seems a little implausible. But Peter has some really interesting things to say. So I'm going to operate in this episode as though Peter was the author of this letter. As unlikely as it may be, this is where the church stands on this. So even if it wasn't Um, The Apostle Peter, the original uh, of of the Twelve, it is a message that I think um, his eyewitness accounts of Jesus and the Transfiguration, uh, the Resurrection, uh, would have followed along with. So I'm going to switch back over to the ESV. The introduction for this letter is going to sound fairly familiar. It is... um, very routine for most of the letters in the New Testament. It begins at verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The header for the first section is called Confirm Your Calling and Election. It starts at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption. That is, in the world, because of sinful desire. This is immediately a fairly large statement. By having been given faith in Jesus, by having been given this uh, belief, we are immediately aided in being set apart from the sinful nature of the world. And this is a common theme in this letter, Peter says again and again to resist what is the fallen and sinful nature of this world that we live in. Instead, in verse 5, he creates a a beautiful kind of ladder of realization, a ladder of spirituality. Uh, um, It may even just be like a a weave of all kinds of different parts of faith— that bring us closer to understanding god that bring us closer to each other in community and bring us closer to a salvation in its final form it says for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I have to repeat it, <clears throat> there's so much going on there. It's really hard not to just skip over this and say, oh, what a beautiful little phrase he did there, but every step of the way in this clump of verses is something equally important that draws us away from simple desire, that draws us away from the world that wants to take our faith away from us, that draws us away from the evil forces in the world that want us to fail and want us to feel bad about ourselves, ultimately want us to die a permanent death. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So faith is the first step. Faith is important. Your belief in Jesus is absolutely essential. But in faith, you must be virtuous. Now, virtue is also sort of a vague category of actions, a vague category of behaviors in the world that we live in now. So virtue could mean a virtuous mind, um, not thinking lewd or crude or mean or Violent or jealous thoughts, but in many ways, I think it in this context, it seems to me more to mean virtuous actions, loving one another in the way that you care for each other, taking care of not just your loved ones, not just those that are close to you, but taking care of all people. And then he says, Supplement your virtue with knowledge. Because faith and virtue on their own, again, are not sufficient. We must also know. We must also, in in our own way, to come closer to God, become more knowledgeable in not just Scripture, but in the ways of the world and how they affect us. To be more knowledgeable, I think, in most of our minds, we think, oh, you know, I need to read more books. And that, that I think is helpful. I think that there is sort of a call to be scholarly in this, but I don't think it's strictly that. I think knowledge can come from experience. I think knowledge can come from conversation. I think knowledge can come from any number of places. So I don't think Peter is necessarily saying... In order to be faithful and virtuous, you also have to be a smarty-pants who's uh, reading all the time, who's constantly um, checking out new uh, Bible commentaries. No, I think he's saying that one must not have their mind closed off to new experiences. Uh, One must not have their mind closed off to new information. Uh, Had the apostles, at the time of Jesus... Uh, not been interested in learning about what Jesus was all about. They would never have learned about his message. They would never have learned about what he was going to do. They probably would have never seen all the miracles that he was going to perform. That knowledge didn't come from them studying books. It came from them accepting a new experience, learning a new experience, being part of a new experience, being active in that. That's where knowledge came from for them. So, going back again, we have faith, virtue, and now knowledge. But, Peter throws a wrench here. In verse 6, he says, supplement knowledge with self-control. Self-control is a major teaching in the early Christian church. I think it speaks to primarily what Paul calls like the uh, concerns of the flesh, This is um, the temporary ways of the world that tempt us in all kinds of scenarios. Uh, I think people hear uh, things of the flesh and they immediately think of sexual sin or something like that. But I think just as often it has to do with greed. I think just as often it has to do with gluttony anything that satisfies the body or satisfies one in our earthly setting that ultimately will have no bearing on our existence beyond this world. That's what Peter is calling for in this self-control. To not just be uh, an ascetic like Paul was, to not just withdraw from the world entirely, but to experience the world in all of the things that there are to learn here in a way that still maintains your virtue, in a way that still maintains your faith. So beyond self-control, Peter says, steadfastness, supplement your s- self-control with steadfastness. So your faith and your virtue and your knowledge and your self-control need to also contain steadfastness. And this is, to me, I think, courage in the face of a challenge on your faith. Not a challenge necessarily from an individual, uh, a challenge from a difficulty in your life, a health issue, something out of your control, a natural disaster. No amount of virtue, knowledge, or self-control will help you keep your faith when it feels like everything in your life is falling apart. And the next one's really tricky because Peter then says, "Steadfastness supplement your steadfastness with godliness. And what do we make of that? We aren't gods. And I would think everything that he's described up to this point is a godly trait in its own way. Although I don't know how much self-control Jesus really needed, while he was fully man, it didn't seem like he really ever had the urge to sin in the way that most of us do. I'm going to move past godliness because, to be completely honest, I don't really understand what the significance of that would be. So Peter says godliness supplemented with brotherly affection. And I'm going to move into the next part of that verse, too, because it says brotherly affection with love. So to read through it one more time, and I I hope it doesn't feel like I'm uh, beating a dead horse here because the Bible isn't a dead horse, but um, verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection And brotherly affection with love. It should be extremely significant to us that this list of ways that we supplement our faith ends with brotherly affection, camaraderie, community, and love. Love for all people, which is the essential core element of Jesus' teaching. It doesn't seem so implausible when you, when you read a passage like this that it was actually the Apostle Peter that, uh, that wrote this because it does resonate so strongly with what Jesus truly taught with the red letters in the Bible. In verse 8, he says, "...for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." Like Paul, Peter's expectations for Christians are extremely high. He's not just saying, okay, I believe in Jesus and, and that's, that's what you have to do. And, and if you do that, then you'll probably be fine. He's saying that in order to uh, maintain yourself in this world that is actively attacking your soul and uh, trying to draw you away from God, Create an armor, a barrier of holy traits, of traits that will help you fortify your faith. That will help you partake in the divine nature, as he says in verse 4. At verse 9, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's difficult. If you lack any of these qualities, you forget that you were cleansed already. I think in a lot of ways, it's true. If you lose your knowledge, if you lose your self-control, if you lose your steadfastness, if you, if you lose your brotherly affection and you lose your love, you will have forgotten what it means to have been cleansed of your sins through the sacrifice of Jesus. But damn, is it hard to keep all that up at all, at all times. Peter then says why he's going so hard on these topics and why he specifically is asking Christians at this time to consider themselves in all of these ways. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it, it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made me clear, made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So the context for the letter, if you believe what is the commonly accepted narrative of authorship for this is that Peter has had a prophetic vision of Jesus. Jesus has returned to speak to Peter and has said, you will die soon. So, of course, he doesn't lead with this. (laughs) This isn't the first thing he says in the letter, although I feel like if most of us had a vision of Jesus saying, you're going to die soon, you'd be writing a letter and saying, okay, so first of all, Jesus said, I'm going to die soon, so I need to get all of this out. No, he leads with a beautiful introduction. He leads with something that is wise and challenging and coherent and beautiful. And then he says, it's important that I bring this up to you. It's important that I remind you of these things. And I want there to be a record of it because I'm going to die soon and I need people to remember that this is extremely important. I need you to remember these teachings. I still can't imagine someone having a vision of Jesus and the only message being, yeah, so you know your time is kind of up. That does beg the question too if if the if the tale is true that Peter was crucified upside down, which is horrific, did Jesus mention that too? Because if God knows what's going to happen, even if it was Peter's choice supposedly to have been crucified upside down, God would have known that he was going to do that. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. At verse 16, the header in the ESV says, Christ's glory and the prophetic word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God, the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention As to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is very challenging. Essentially, this, I think, would be an argument for um, a literal interpretation of the Bible. I mean, he's truly saying these words are not men, uh, the words of men. These are the words of God that came through men, these prophetic words. And he warns against anyone believing in a religion that doesn't have an eyewitness back, uh, background, doesn't have an eyewitness account of all these things happening. Peter says he doesn't just follow, they didn't just follow a word. They didn't follow cleverly devised myths, which I think is a knock in, in some ways at some of the, the more idol based societies, some of the more idol based faiths. They came from myths. He refers to later in the book the, um, the, the, the Greek mythology place of hell, uh, Tartarus. Uh, a place where, um, you know, people are eternally tormented or a place where people are placed to be tormented, if not eternally. But that he uses that reference, again, I think speaks to his knowledge of those that base their entire belief systems off of myths. No, he's saying our faith... Our belief in Jesus as the Son of God does not come from a myth. These are not half-horse, half-humans. This is a man who was God, who walked the earth, who was killed and resurrected, and we saw it. And that's a powerful thing. But that he says... No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Again, he's so certain of that. And yet, here we are. So Peter goes on, and uh, I think I should stop there for, for this week. Peter goes on to warn against false prophets and teachers. Second uh, Peter 2 could be its own episode. It is uh, remarkably dense, uh, very challenging, and again, has high expectations for the church. It is one of the, I think, primary uh, warnings against things like prosperity gospel preachers uh, was just listening the other day to a sermon where someone all of a sudden broke into uh, commenting about uh, giving to the church and the church and God will bestow upon you riches beyond your wildest dreams. And while that is an effective method of fundraising, I think for a lot of people, it comes off as extremely predatory. And of course, I don't know that preacher's heart. I don't know where he was coming from in that um in that statement. But anytime I hear something like that, it seems as though the person that is preaching for the giving and that God will bestow upon you all these riches um, after you've given so much always seems to be driving a really nice car, always seems to have a really nice house. I think maybe that makes me too cynical. I want to genuinely believe that God can bestow gifts upon us in that way. And I think that he's capable of doing it. But do I think that he does it as often as um, many say? Can't tell. I think that in some ways, many people find methods to enrich themselves in this world that are built on their faith. Whether it's built also on their knowledge and their self-control and their brotherly affection and their love is another question. But again, 2 Peter uh, 2 is for another time. I'll wrap, here, wrap up here because I think there was um, a section of a, a very interesting book that I wanted to read from for just a moment before we get into um, the poem. This is from a book called Too Deep for Words, Rediscovering Lectio Divina by Thelma Hall. The Lectio Divina was a ancient contemplative prayer practice. But there is a beautiful section in here about love and accepting love. And uh, it resonated with me when I was flipping through it after I had gone through this section in 2 Peter Uh, It's called The Grace of Accepted Love. It makes little difference what treasure we may have clung to, what seduction we may have succumbed to, what resistance we may have energized in ourselves to block our total surrender to God. There remains within us a love that can be awakened by the sheer grace of His love's desire for us, if we fully accept it. Yet, as we all know, we find this incredibly difficult. Perhaps this is why the observation has been made that most of us seem to assume that union with God is attained by laboriously ascending a ladder of virtues which finally fashion our holiness and make us fit for him. In truth, the reverse is far more accurate. The great saints and mystics have been those who have fully accepted God's love for them. It is this which makes everything else possible." Our incredulity in the face of God's immense love and also self-hate or an unyielding sense of guilt can be formidable obstacles to God's love and are often subtle and unrecognized forms of pride in putting our bad above his mercy. It's a beautiful book and I recommend people check it out. A little unconventional, but that's my sort of thing. Uh, before I read this week's poem, I just wanted to say uh, thank you again to everyone that's signed up for the Patreon. Uh, this week's bonus episode was also a solo episode, so I'm sure you're all um, clamoring for me to finally talk to someone else, and you'll be pleased to know that I think the next three or four episodes at least will have guests on them. Uh, it's been a little unusual to have um me do solo episodes, two episodes in a row. And I guess it just sort of happened this way uh, by timing or by scheduling or by circumstance. But um, I've been really grateful to have been able to engage with scripture on my own in this way. And so I thank you very much for listening as always. This week's poem is by Robinson Jeffers. It's called The Excesses of God. Is it not by his high superfluousness we know our God? For to be equal in need is natural, animal, mineral, but to fling rainbows over the rain and beauty above the moon and secret rainbows on the domes of deep sea shells and make the necessary embrace of breeding beautiful also as fire not even the weeds to multiply without blossom, nor the birds without music. There is the great humaneness at the heart of things, the extravagant kindness, the fountain humanity can understand and would flow likewise if power and desire were perchmates. Thanks, everybody. Took the 40 down to visit the family and I Told you the only kin I knew So I could see from the goodness.